Welcome to the Disruptive Entrepreneur Podcast. For anyone who wants to make money and make a difference, grow and leverage your enterprise better, get more done in less time, outsource everything and create your ideal lifestyle. And now, your host, eight times best-selling author and double world record holder, Rob Moore. Hi, it's Rob Moore here and welcome to the Disruptive Entrepreneur Podcast. Now, my job is to disrupt you and to disrupt me to disrupt you. So we've disrupted me and this is a bit of a different episode. Normally you hear me interviewing, you know, a successful person or, you know, for me, the target is someone who's disruptive. And so I like to think of all the people I've interviewed are disruptive in some way. But this is kind of the shoes on the other foot because I've been disrupted. So a really good friend of mine, Dan Bradbury, who runs a great uh, business building business and he's um, you know, written some books and got a podcast of his own. He asked if he could interview me and um, I like being interviewed. I like being challenged. And so I agreed. And so what we're going to do is we're going to patch you into Dan interviewing me. Now, I've got the questions in front of me. He asked me about what drives me. Uh, he wants to know about the different companies that I've built. He wants to know about the podcast, The Disruptive Entrepreneur. He wants to know about some of the struggles and challenges I have. He wants to know if I set goals and how I set goals for myself. He wants to, me to talk about building wealth versus making money and what the difference is. He goes through some routines and some things he perceives high achievers do. And he wants to kind of, you know, reverse engineer some of the, maybe my habits. Uh, he wants to know my favorite, most influential books and projects I'm working on at the moment. So hopefully some of those questions will be useful to you. Anyway, enough rambling from me. Here we go. Rob, that was a bit of a flummoxed start, uh, but uh, I'm glad that we're, that we're now both live and on the line. <laughs> I was just telling everybody, again, your brief intro. I was just about to say that you are a two times world record holder as well. So uh, let's dive straight in. Uh, for, for those that haven't come across you, and I find it hard to imagine somebody can't know of your existence if they fly on a plane these days. You can't go anywhere without seeing the disruptive <laughs> podcast. But uh, uh, kick us off by tell us a little bit about who is Rob Moore and how did you build the empire that you've built today. Dan, first off, thanks for the intro. Very grateful. So in 2005, December the 15th, it was, my dad had a nervous breakdown in his pub in front of all of his best customers. And he'd worked 35 years in pubs and bars and hotels and restaurants. He was a self-employed man. He'd become a millionaire in property, what, probably in the 70s and early 80s. And, um, you know, he'd had all the highs and all the lows. And when that happened, it was a massive jolt to me to sort my life out. Now, my dad had raised me to be an entrepreneur. He took me around all the pubs and bars and hotels and clubs he'd buy or manage. And he always he instilled in me the desire to, you know, be my own boss and build my own business and this passion for entrepreneurship. But from about the age of 17 to 25, I lost my way. I went to a good school, went to uni, got a good degree, had you know, great upbringing with great parents. You know, a lot of people have a really sad story and really genuinely things, bad things that have happened to them. I haven't. You know, I had everything, everything you could ever wish for to be given was given to me. And maybe that was... The problem, because everything was a bit too easy and I'd never had to really hustle on my own. And I was maybe a bit sufficient, self, um, 
unself-sufficient, so reliant on my parents. I mean, I worked in their pub till they were till I was 25. And then when this happened, it was like a massive shock to me, whereby like I, I need to do something different. And it's quite a long story, Dan, I'll keep it really short. A week later, I went to my first ever business stroke property networking meeting. I'd become quite insular and introverted and shy. And I met Mark Homer, my business partner there, and I had no idea that um, you know he was already quite successful in property and I'd become a property investor. I never had any dreams to be a property investor. It was nothing that I'd ever you know, really wanted to do per se. It was just you know, I wanted to make money and I wanted to do something with my life. I'd failed as an artist, I'd failed as a pub landlord, I'd failed as um, an architect. And fast forward to now, things are a bit different. We, we're um, now an eight-figure business, so we do more than £10 million a year if you add our property, personal property portfolio in, because that's now about 720 properties owned or managed. And um, This year, it'll probably be about £18.5 million. And, um, you know, like the best part of that is to, uh, to have shown my dad that all the faith he had in me and all the training he gave me and all the love he gave me. He used to let me count all the money in the pool tables and the fruit machine. He was teaching me to count money before I could count count. And, um, you know, the greatest thing about that is being able to show your dad that you're a worthy son, I suppose. And um, so, yeah, you know, you mentioned some of the things I've done. I don't want this to be a, you know, Rob show or Rob blowing his own trumpet, you know, but I do have... I think the UK's largest business podcast. We've got 400 and odd thousand subscribers. Uh, hey, look, I'd be grateful if I had one subscriber that I served. Um, I've got the public speaking world records. I've done over a thousand speeches now. You know, I, I started this when I was 26. I'm now 38. So what's most really exciting for us? I still see myself as young, Dan. I think you're a bit younger than me. I'm probably a bit delusional. I'm probably getting into middle age now. But I'm so excited that I'm going to be doing this when I'm 90 and 95. I'll just be probably a little bit more cantankerous then. So I'm only just warming up. You know, I've got another 50 years to do this. And that's just a really exciting prospect. Obviously, I've got, like you said, I've got the UK's largest property training business, Progressive Property. But we still haven't hit the ceiling of where that can go. I've written quite a few books. Um, my recent book, Life Leverage, did pretty good. They're translating that into a lot of languages at the moment. But, you know, these are all little accolades, which don't really mean a lot. I think the, the thing that I'm the most proud of is um, raising kids who I feel are, um, you know, good kids. And Bobby's the, currently the highest-ranked five-year-old golfer in the world. I'm going to get married this year, so finally someone on the planet that wants to marry me and not dump me. So that, that, we've been together nearly 11 years. That's a pretty good achievement for me. And my, I have a global vision of global financial freedom. And so there's 400,000-odd people across the, the, the planet in 170-odd countries that are getting some benefit about me running my mouth off. So I guess that's... Um, I don't know if that's the, too long or too short, Dan, but that's, maybe that's where we'll start. You know, that was a, a great intro, and there's so many routes that I want to make sure we cover, Robert. Uh, well, you mentioned your son, uh, Bobby. It's inspirational to me as uh, the father of uh, uh, three children, young children, not only have you achieved a lot, Rob, but you've also clearly uh, I've met your children and, and happy, well-adjusted children. Even they're very young, and, and yet Bobby's already showing excelling in an area in a way that, speaking very frankly, is not pushy parenting. You know, it, it, you can if you're spending time around Bobby, you can see that he's not you know excelling at golf because you're forcing him to excel, but rather he just absolutely loves it. Mm. So even though it seems like a bit of a sideways leap, I'm, I'm curious because I know a lot of the people listening will be will be parents and simultaneously trying to run a business. 
what were the commonalities? What what did running successful businesses teach you about being a successful parent? And and what did raising your children? How did that cross uh, pollinate over to business? Okay, so I think it's probably thanks to the development I did in business that I was able to take what I believe is a better approach to parenting. Now, the first thing I want to sort of state openly is my kids are five and two, and I'm not the guru of parenting, and I'm always learning as a parent, so I don't feel like I'm a complete parent or the best parent. I've got happy kids, and I love them, and, you know, a lot of it's due to their mum, Gemma, my fiance, because she's an amazing mum. But before I got into business, so this was in 2005, I tried to do everything on my own, and I didn't think you needed to do courses or have mentors or, you know, you, you just do it yourself. And, you know, you learn through experience and, you know, learning is fluff. Just get out there and go and do it. And so the problem with that is you make all the mistakes yourself, you know, and there's a hell of a lot of sort of wasteful testing. And th- there's a, a famous saying, which I'm going to paraphrase because I don't know exactly. But, you know, basically not so smart people uh, don't learn from their mistakes Smart people learn from their mistakes. Wise people learn from the mistakes of others. And you hear a lot of people say, oh, well, you can't learn how to be a parent. You know, you, you, you just, you know, the, the baby's born and you just do what you can and you just learn as you go. And so I took a very much business approach and a personal development approach to being a parent, which is like, surely there's some experts in it. Surely there's some people who've raised great kids. Surely there's some people who are nurses or look after kids who've written books and do events and do podcasts and all that kind of thing. And as soon as I knew that we were going to have kids, which fortunately for us was about five minutes before it happened. So that's one of my good self-worth moments. We didn't have to practice for too long. (laughs) And I, by the way, also feel very grateful for that because of my sister and a lot of other people I know and care about. You know, they try for a long time to have parents and they go after miscarriage after miscarriage. And I feel very grateful through them, you know, that we, we got lucky. So I was listening to audios and podcasts. I listened to Zig Ziglar's Raising Positive Kids in a Negative World, which I thought was awesome. I read um, Tiger Woods' his dad's book on raising the world number one golfer. I listened to, you know, any um, parenting book I can, Steve Bidoff, Raising Boys, Raising Girls and all of that. And I just tried to learn what I could. And I know you have the similar attitude to me, Dan, which is you actually can learn from to be a good parent. And you can learn you know, the people who've trodden the path and their kids have left home and, you know, their kids are doing well. So so that was the attitude I took, number one. And then number two is having a vision for how you want to raise your kids. So I'm a real student of axiology, of vision, of values. Um, one of my mentors, John Demartini, is, you know, a big teacher of that. And he's been in personal development 25 years longer than me. So I I knew probably three years before I was having my kids that like we should have a set of family values. We should be very strategic about how we want to raise our kids, you know, and not to try and make them everyone and everything and not to try and make them perfect everything because none of us are. But, you know, how do we want them to grow? Who do we want them to be? And, um, you know, I did a lot of thought and research into what would make a well-adjusted sort of good self-worth child And I thought that being good at something would help because um, I never got great at anything. I got good at quite a lot of things, which is actually a a curse as much as it is a blessing. And if my dad gave me a lot of freedom, so I was pretty good at cricket, pretty good at golf, pretty good at most things I turn my hand to, pretty good at martial arts. But the problem, and I'm not saying that to go, look at me, I'm pretty good at everything because that's really bad. Because if you're pretty good at everything, you're, you're not great at one thing. And, you know, I want to make a difference on the planet and I want my kids to make a difference on the planet. So I tried to learn from my mistakes, not, you know, not damage my self-worth, but my mistakes. And so I thought, I want my children to be great at something. 
but you've got to love something to enjoy being great at it. So it's got to be something that they love. And of course, there's a bit of vicarious living through the kids because I was a failed professional golfer. So yeah, hands up. Aren't we all doing that? Aren't we all raising our children to be, you know, we're trying to fix what was broken in us and we're trying to not expose them to what we're exposed to that we didn't particularly enjoy being raised. And, you know, that's that's what we do. So, you know, I've, I've, so I stopped beating myself up about all of that or beating other parents up about that. And, you know, what if you go to school and you're really great at something, martial arts, a sport, you know, you're a, a genius at maths or chess, you're likely to get bullied less. You're likely to get ad- admired or accepted by your peer group more. And by the way, if you go to a good school and you have a good experience in school, then that is one of the major things that's going to grow you into, to use your words, Dan, a well-adjusted child. You know, if you have a good parenting where, you know, you're parents are together and you don't get abused and you have good schooling where you have good teachers and you have teachers who you hate who you know tell you you're dyslexic or you're a failure then you know in from all the experience and research I've done and my experience now as a parent if those two things are good you are so much more likely to be a person who contributes to society who you know gives as well as takes who has skills and talents that provide for other people and has pretty good self-worth. And for me, golf marries all those things because socially it's good. You get to travel. Obviously, you, you can be very successful at it and earn millions and millions and millions. But by the way, if you just end up being a club pro, that's great. And you still have a good living and you, you meet a lot of people and you have a lot of people. And golf, you know, there's a lot of people involved in golf. And, you know, if you look at most of the successful golfers, they seem to be pretty well adjusted, like you said, Dan, compared to maybe other sports. So then I went about just trying to make it who he is very early. So, you know, I was reading golf stories to him while he was in his mummy's tummy. And I read, I read golf stories to him every night. We played, we watched this film about um, world, the, the world's best golfers called The Short Game. He's watched that hundreds of times, put it on in the car, had golf audio on in the car and, you know, really tried to get it into his subconscious mind. Now, of course, I know I'm going to have some critics for this, this parenting technique, and I'm okay with that because everyone is entitled to my opinion. Uh, this is me. This is my kids. I'm not telling you what to do with your kids. I'm telling you, you know, my strategy for my kids. Because golf is just one part of that because it's, you know, how, you know, God, Bobby is so, Gobby, I said, Bobby, he's so polite. He's actually a lot more introverted than me, and that's quite cute because he's not going around saying, look at me, I'm a great golfer. He doesn't tell anyone about it. He doesn't, he's had three hole-in-ones. He's five years old. Many adult golfers who are in single figures have never had a hole in one. And he doesn't go around telling anyone about it. I'm his like marketer. I'm his agent. I'm his, you know. And so he's more like his mum in that regard. So I think that's a nice balance. But yeah, like there have been times when I've had to nudge him and push him. There's been times when I've pushed him too hard. You know, like I think overall the balance is good. I've got good self-worth about that. But yeah, there's times when I've pushed him too hard. I've made some mistakes and I've had to back off. But I wasn't pushed probably quite hard enough in some areas that I, you know, uh, maybe I could have been, and I'm not blaming my parents because they're awesome parents. They did everything they could, and I love them, and I probably wouldn't change anything. But, you know, if you don't push your kids, then they become too dependent. If you push them too hard and expose them, they become probably too hyper-independent, too early, too young. And I think you've got to balance nudging them, coaxing them, pushing them, encouraging them to do new things, getting out of their comfort zone. By the way, this is all stuff you learn in business. So for, for me, there's a lot of parallels with golf and business and raising you know, a child. So for example, Bobby's really shy with kids and I do nudge him to go and play with kids. And he won a competition in Dubai and he was beating kids who are 12 and 13 and he's five. And when we went to play the competition, as soon as he knew it was a competition, he started crying. He didn't want to do it. 
Now, I, I gave him permission to back out if he wanted, but I said to him, look, you love this. You love meeting people. Oh, no, 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 no. Bit, of a, bit of a meltdown. Anyway, after the first time when he got a birdie and all of a sudden he was like quite excited, he was sort of in it. And I said, look, Bobby, okay, if you don't want to carry on, we'll finish halfway through or something like that. And by the third hole, he was loving it. All the kids love him because he's like the youngest kid by a million miles. It's the sort of thing where you don't expect him to, it's a bit like a really skinny person like me bench pressing 500 kilos. It's just a weird thing to see someone so young, so good. So everyone loves him and, you know, he's just shy and humble with it. So, you know, like I'm trying to balance it, nudging him, pushing him along to grow as a person, to meet people, to be social, because that's important, and to, and to get out of his comfort zone and have bravery and courage and take risks. But they're not pushing him too hard so that, because I know if I push him too hard, he'll rebel and he won't want to do it. And um, everyone's saying, well, Rob, wait till he's a teenager. Uh, you know, wait till he gets into girls and all that stuff. Well, we'll, we'll cross that bridge when it comes to it. But, you know, he'll be, he'll be close to dominating the world by then. Uh, so so the, th the thing is with raising a parent and running a business and developing yourself, it's an ongoing thing. And yeah, he loves golf now. And he, I don't have to nudge him to do it. And um, yeah, he's got all sorts of world records already. And yes, it's going to be a good year because he's now in the right age category because he was playing in the under six world championships when he was four. You know, and that's a big difference. Um, but, but yeah, I think it's going to be a big year for him. But basically, testing, learning, observing, doing what's right for your child and balancing, you know, the, the parenting skills that you want to implement, making sure it's holistic. So it's not just about golf. It's about a well-rounded, polite, kind, giving, caring person. Yeah, I could talk about this all day, Dan, but I know there's a few more questions on the list. <laughs> yeah, no, no, I like it, and it's fascinating insight. But let me jump track for a second. One of my favourite things that I like, uh, and if anybody's listening to this that's not already following Rob uh, on social media, you should do so immediately. Uh, if nothing more than for the pure entertainment value, uh, Rob's not shy of sharing his opinion. And, and one of the best debates that I saw on Facebook, Rob, was one that you sparked around this topic called passive income and what that means and what that represents. I know that your opinion on that topic is very different than a lot of people's and, and there was a very furiously fought debate which I really enjoyed uh, uh, reading on Facebook. Give, give me your thoughts. You know, a lot, a lot of people are out there, you know, and whilst most of the people listening to this are serious business owners, you know, I, I still think a lot of all of us wishes that we could just have this magical life and live on a beach and have passive income. What would you say? to people that have that thought. What's your opinion of you as it relates to this passive income? Okay, so, I mean, obviously passive income is money. And, um, you know, there's a lot of people that say that money doesn't buy you happiness. Well, fucking does. And I think that I feel like it's my burning, passionate desire and message to get it out there that money is not bad. Now, I know you've asked me about passive income, Dan, and I'll get to that in a minute. Because, you know, for everyone that says that money is the root of, root of all evil, there is a counter argument that money is the root of all good. Nearly all the best universities in America were set up by philanthropists like Carnegie, for example, Andrew Carnegie and, and people like that, Vanderbilt. So everything good in the world has come from money because money is our mechanism of universal exchange of value. Of course, everything in the ba bad in the world has come of money because money is the universal mechanism of exchange of value. Therefore, money is both good and bad. Therefore, money is not all bad. Money is as good as it is bad. But the reality is money is just an ethereal mechanism to move human energy around. 
So it's, it's energy that's moving from person to person to person to person. Dan, if I you know, do one of your seminars and I give you some money, what I am doing is I'm putting faith in you that you're going to give me value and you're receiving my energy in the mechanism of money to you know, make that a transaction and give that fair exchange. And people were doing that way before money was even a thing. So now let's move on to passive income. A lot of people, there's, there's like a polarized debate on this because, you know, we all want passive income. It's like that, it's that allure, isn't it? It's that dream of, of earning more and doing less. Uh, but, and the reality is you can have passive income. And um, anyone I've ever heard who says, and I'm not saying everyone in the world, I'm saying my experience here, Anyone who I've ever looked into and researched and done diligence on who said that um, there is no such thing as passive income doesn't have any fucking money. They, they are not rich. And you must only, in my opinion, take advice about money and your money and your life from people who've made significant amounts of money. And that's why I tell people how much money we do in our businesses and that kind of thing. And not because I'm... I'm bragging and showing off but if I'm in teaching you how to be a millionaire and I'm not one that is like you know there's a disconnect there and that would make me a fraud and I became a millionaire when I was uh, between the age of 30 and 31 and it was always a dream of mine because my dad never said to me it was bad to be a millionaire because he was one and then he wasn't one and then he was one and then he wasn't one and he wanted me to be one and that doesn't make me a bad person you know because uh, I could I can use money and I can use millions for a power for good. We've just set up a progressive property foundation this year. We've given nearly half a million pounds to Sue Ryder and Cancer Research. Now, if I was skint, I wouldn't be able to do that. I regularly run competitions to give away thousands of pounds here and thousands of pounds there and donate money here and there. And I'm not saying that to get any fans. I'm just saying that if I was skint, I couldn't do that. So this passive income thing, property proved to me you can have passive income. And um, I was an artist and I had active debt. So most people have active debt, i.e. working really hard and no money. But, you know, some of the richest people in the world, let's say someone like Richard Branson, you know, they look like life is a lot more effortless the more money you make. And obviously, you know, they travel in style and everything they do seems to be wrapped in this, um, you know, floaty cotton wool. And life just seems to be amazing. Now, of course, it's easy to judge an individual and every individual is individual. But I like to think of it is you have to work hard enough not to have to work hard and you have to set to forget. So you cannot have passive income doing nothing ever. You can have passive income if you create assets that uh, once they're set and managed, you can remove your time and energy exchange from and they can still produce income. So here are some examples. So property, you get a tenant, you put the tenant in, you go through the, you know, the organisation of that. A letting agent manages the tenant. You may have a part-time staff manager that manages the letting agent that manages the tenant. The tenant pays for your mortgage. The tenant pays your income. And then if you're enough steps from removed, you don't have to do anything except get the income. Now, that's how it's done with me and my property portfolio. So currently about 720 units we own or manage or we have joint ventures in. We're just about to an exchange on a, on a deal that's 90,000 square foot, which will be 90 flats that we'll convert with a massive retail at the bottom. We've just done a 38 room conversion. So we've got 38 rooms and flats in this old building that we converted. And um, my business partner, Mark Homer, 
manages the process and then he has contractors and builders and letting agents and estate agents and conveyances, solicitors, you know, architects, blah, blah, blah. And he has this team and, and he manages them. And you know, that might take him 10 hours a week to manage them. Whereas if he was one level below, it'd take him 15 hours a week, one level below, but it'd take him 20 hours a week, blah, blah, blah. And then I converse with Mark. Now, why would Mark do that for me and give me half of all the profits? Well, he'd do that because I spend more time in our education business. But we have over 70 staff at Progressive In-House and about 150 staff part-time or outsourced. So in total, we have 225 people who are running our training businesses, which means that I don't have to do it personally. We have, we have 140 trainers and we do 600 event days a year. And I do about 15 of them. And the ones I do are to train trainers to train trainers. And two years ago, I was training trainers. And two years before that, I was a trainer. And two years before that, I was a shadow assistant trainer to a trainer. So what you do is you build layers of people and management and systems and processes to step-by-step step remove you to a higher level of abstraction. So you have to do less. So I don't, I don't do this interview and get paid for this interview because this is just me and my fun time because I like being interviewed and I like doing podcasts and it's a passion of mine, and it's a passion of yours. But I can do this because I don't have to go around every single one of my 220 properties and I don't have to go and manage my 225 staff because we've got an MD and then, you know, the MD has a PA and I have a PA and Mark has a PA and then we have a layer of management. So the reality is you can get passive income, but not immediately doing nothing. You can't be a lazy bastard and do nothing and expect the millions to roll in. You work hard enough not to have to work hard and you're set to forget. But if you're smart, you can reduce the time and the wastage and the mistakes to go from working hard to working smart, from work to leverage. Now, there's so many assets people don't know about. So of course, properties are assets. You know, stocks are assets, bonds are assets, your ISA is an asset, a book is an asset, an audio book is an asset, a license is an asset, a franchise is an asset, IP is an asset. Oh, there's so many, a song is an asset. I mean, you know, what is it that, um, it's Christmas! Sorry, if I knew the, um, is it Slade? You know, they've been earning off that. I can't believe I just did that live. Uh, that was emb embarrassing. Uh, no, for a second then, I thought, I thought Slade, uh, uh, you didn't tell me Slade are actually in your office right now, Rob. <laughs> yeah, that's an asset. That's passive income. They don't have to go and play that song every time it's on the radio. You know, it might be on the radio a million times over Christmas and they get paid a royalty on each one of those and they don't have to play the song a million times. A CD album, you know, is an asset, is an asset, but the gig that the band play is not an asset. So there are loads of different types of assets. So number one, you have to work out what an asset is. Then you have to build them and then you have to systemize them and then you have to have to manage and then you're liberated. So for example, I, I, I slightly tweaked the way I was writing my book. So when I was writing Property Investing Secrets, the first edition, I was writing about, you know, how you set up a, a limited company and what the mortgage rates are and, and that kind of stuff and the interest rates. And the problem with that is next year that changes. And so the book looks kind of out of date. So we're having to do an edition, do edition three, edition four. When I wrote Life Leverage this time around, I tried to write 90% of it or as much of it as possible so that in 20 or 30 or 50 years, it's still relevant. And therefore, that's, gonna, that's a long tail of me, you know, because I wrote the book. So that took me some time. So at that point, it wasn't a passive income. But it's 14 months going now. It got to number one in all books in the country and is still often in the top 10 in business books in, on Audible and Amazon. So Think and Grow Rich, what a great example. How to Win Friends and Influence People, what a great example. They are assets. I mean, they're earning after the author is dead because they're, they're written in a way that they have a long shelf life. So if I'm exchanging my time 
to build an asset, I want it to have a very long shelf life, which is why I love property, because all my properties are going to outlive me. And I'm more now interested in doing assets than exchanging time. So, Dan, we don't have a financial exchange here. You and I are friends. We've been friends for years. But to me, this is an asset. Because if your podcast takes off and goes wild, this episode is always going to be on your podcast. So that's an asset. I do it now. I leave and the recording's forever. By the way, Dan, as you're doing this, you're recording this. So you might use this for some other function. We've got people live on a webinar and I'm doing a, a video, which I might then repurpose. And we're recording it in case I want to launch it for my podcast. So this, the time is exchanged once, but we've got five different repurposable assets here. As you can see, I'm pretty passionate about this, Dan, because a load of skint people say there's no such thing as passive income. And they're wrong. I love this. I want to come back to, I want to talk about assets. I want to make sure we talk more in depth about life leverage, but I want to dive in a slightly different direction. Let's talk about Mark. Um, so some, of the, some of the people listening will be familiar with your fellow uh, business owner, your business partner, Mark Homer. And, and, and I want to draw attention to it because a lot of people that are businesses that I work with, Rob, oftentimes it can, it can be husband and wife or there can be multiple business partners or it can be father and son. And uh, what's fascinating is, for people that know you and know Mark, is that you're extremely different in many respects and personalities. And some would say, well, how the hell can this produce such a successful series of businesses? And you use the example of Mark uh, uh, being more focused in well, one of your businesses, you being more focused in another, even though your partner's in those businesses. How does that dynamic work? Or, or perhaps better said, uh, tell me a little bit about the, the time that you guys met. Did you get on from the word go or, okay. or did you think he was a pillock or yeah. <laughs> how, how did that dynamic come about and how does it function now still however many years later it is? Okay, so obviously I've been able to do 11 years worth of this partnership with Mark and um, 11 years with Gemma as well, my fiance, And then before that, lots of, lots of fractious relationships, whether it's business or even non-existent or sort of family, you know, trying to date, etc. And so um, there's kind of like a before and after. So if I could sum that into what I think the recipe is for a successful partnership, it is similar vision, different skills. That's the most important thing. The more similar your vision, but the more opposing your skill set, in my experience, partnerships work best. Now, one of my companies, Progressive Property, there are hundreds, maybe thousands of JVs going on. And I see some succeed and many are passing ships in the night and some start and then break and whatever else. And when you have two people who are similar in terms of passions and what they do and what they're good at, that rarely works. Because if two people in a partnership are doing the same thing, one isn't necessary. So you get duplication. You get one person trying to tell the other one what to do where the other one thinks they're better than the other one and the other one thinks they're better than the other one. So Mark and I have a very similar vision. You know, Mark loves property. Mark loves business. Mark wants to keep growing his properties and his business empire. You know, he, he has a good relationship with money and wants to keep making more. And he wants to do it for the rest of his life. And me, the same in all of those. So, you know, if we had opposing skill sets, but Mark wanted a quick smash and grab in property for two years and then out, and then I wanted to do it forever, well, he's going to want to do flips and he's going to want to money in, money out really quickly rather than us building a portfolio that we want to keep and wants to grow. So similar vision. It's good to have some similar values, but everyone has different values. So similar vision, maybe similar values, but some opposing values and completely opposing skill set. So 
That's what I think works. And by the way, my relationship with Gemma works because it's the same thing, that we've got a similar you know, vision of what we want our marriage to be when, when we get married and our, our, our kids and everything else, but we're very different people. Now, and, and how do you manage the conflict? How, so the inevitable similar vision obviously keeps you pointing in the same direction, but if your personalities or your approaches to problems are different because of your different skill sets, I'm guessing friction arises at times. How do you manage that yeah. with Mark or with Jim? So when I met Mark, because I'm going to put these last two questions into one, I did think he was a bit strange, and I know the feelings were mutual. He'd never met anyone like me, and he thought, huh, weird. And, and I thought, huh, weird. So, but that was good, but we didn't know it was good. Now, Mark will tell you, if you asked him the same question, that he, he met me, he thought it was a bit weird, but he thought there was something interesting about me. And he tested me by giving me some books to read and giving me some things to do because he was way further ahead in business than I was back then. And then when he saw that, you know, I was pretty prolific around it and passionate and hungry, he realised that I had something about me in his world. And he also realised I could do things he couldn't, and that impressed him. And then kind of about two or three months into our relationship of knowing each other, we did our first property deal together, which was his money and his experience and his knowledge, but my kind of hunger and passion and enthusiasm. And I, I got Mark running, which is a massive part of his life. I got him into personal development and going on courses, which is a massive part of his life now, which wasn't then. So I added value in a different way. I didn't have money. I didn't have experience in property, but I added value in a different way. And that's important. You've got to add value. So now, how do we manage conflict? Well... I think that life is so much better when you view anything from someone else's point of view. So in the past, Mark and I would have conflict and I would think he is uh, reacting at me when in reality he is having an experience that he has recurring, recurrently, and then he reacts and I happen to be there. And there's a big difference. So I learned to not take any of the criticism or the arguments personally and realise that it's Mark being Mark. And that really helped me. Now, Mark is a fantastic, positive, inspirational, problem-solving guy. But if he's had no sleep, he's grumpy. And he would not mind me saying that. And he has some sleep challenges. So if I know he hasn't slept, I can back off and not go there and not press his buttons. What's the purpose of me pressing his buttons in that regard? So I've learned to back off him and leave him alone if he hasn't had any, had any sleep. I've learned to time, you know, when I um, approach him. And also, I've learned to accept that some of the conflict is good. So one of my favourite bands is Radiohead, and they have a lot of conflict within their band about their... Um, they, they, a lot of them have different tastes in music. A lot of them want to write different music, you know, like the drummer at one point wanted to do three and a half minute songs that were going to play on the radio. And of course, Tom York, who writes the music, he wants to do stuff that is not on the radio. And he wants, as soon as he makes a best selling album, he wants to do something that is not best selling. And as soon as they're a great guitar band, he wants to do digital experimental music. And, you know, you've got this conflict between them, but you've got a cohesive, I want to be in Radiohead and I love music. But you've got this, all these different styles and conflicts, and that creates a genius band. And I think that's what creates a great partnership is the love, the respect, the vision. But you need to have some conflict. And I teach Mark stuff and Mark teaches me stuff. And even today we're having some conversations and I'm still thinking, you know, oh, man, come on, get off that horse. 
But he brings that flavour and a lot of the things that I used to perceive are Mark's downsides are actually what makes Mark Mark and make him great at it. And the great thing is, anything that is a real downside is I have as an upside and anything that um, he has an, as an, an upside, wait a minute, I've just done that. Anything I have as, yeah, you get what I mean. So basically, let me summarise this. Put yourself in their shoes. Understand that what frustrates you about them is great about them. And if you have got similar opposing skill sets, they're always going to challenge you and you need that challenge to grow. And of course, emotionally, you don't want it because it's a challenge. But that challenge forces you to grow. Now, as our partnership has flourished, we've got evidence that when we go through that conflict, we come out and we grow. And our relationship seems to get stronger and stronger and stronger. And we really we've learned to manage each other. And, um, you know, my fiance has this sort of little look. And um, I used to think that little look was, Rob, you've pissed me off. What that look is, is I have things going in my head. Rob, don't talk to me. And they are very different. So not taking things personally, you know, around Mark and knowing when to distance, as is with any JV partner, as is with any business partner. So it's almost like be the change you want to see. Yeah, I hope that helps. Uh, I love that. So let me take this in a different direction. Now, I know that you are to produce consistency of results. You know, it, it's not a fluke, you know, whether it be Bobby on the golf course or whether it be uh, uh, Mark on a property deal or, or you uh, structuring some kind of joint venture or, or, or when you launched uh, the Disruptive Entrepreneur podcast, which just got traction rapidly, you know, with amazing traction very quickly. Let's talk about morning routines. Like, how do you set yourself up, Rob, for kind of consistent high performance? Okay. So there's a lot of answers in this and I'll try and pick out a few. So Mark taught me that if you want to be successful, you need to keep doing something and you need to stop, start stopping, start stopping, start stopping, start stopping. And before I met Mark, I start, stop, start, stop, start, stop, more things you, you could even imagine. And that's why I got good but not great at anything or even mediocre and not good. And, you know, a lot of those things you mentioned, Dan, I'm riding on the back of experience and success of something previously because I'm still doing this thing. So it's actually, you know, like I'm, I'm a normal, ordinary guy and I'm not particularly great at a lot of things. But my podcast went well because I'm able, able to send an email to a database of 256,000 people, you know, that we built over 10 years of, of running progressive property. Uh, and, you know, my life leverage book, which got, you know, really high and number one out of every book in the in the country when it launched, because I've got a load of customers and I've been doing a lot of things that are similar for a long time. So it's momentum. It's compounding. So that was one thing I never knew how to do before the age of 25 or 26. that I know now I'm taking all my business and personal development experience into being a parent. So I think a great tip I can give for someone is if you are like someone like me, because us entrepreneurs, we like variety and we want to do loads of different things and we don't want to be boxed. And we want freedom and we, you know, we, we're bored easily and we're impatient. So if you're going to go into do something new, make sure it's, it, you can link it to what you just did. So what Mark and I, for example, we set up a letting agency, but we did that when we had a few hundred properties. So you're transmuting all the experience of building your properties and your knowledge, your experience and your letting agents and everything else. And then you set up a letting agency. And you, so you've got 80% of the knowledge experience already. And in fact, we set up, set up the letting agency with someone who managed some of the properties who was in a different letting agency. So I think that's why some of the things you've mentioned, Dan, have gone well. It's because, not because they've been great in their own right and I'm a genius at producing amazing new things all the time. Because I'm not. But, you know, like if Muse or Coldplay or someone like that now released an album, they know that they've got three million sales in the bank. Because they're still the same band and they've kicked out their eighth album. And they tour all the time and they build this momentum and compounding. 
So you've got to let momentum and compounding happen, which means you've got to be patient, which I'm not. Uh, and most entrepreneurs aren't. And, and it's frustrating. Like I've, I wrote my book. I finished my book three months ago and the publisher wants to launch in June. June, that's like a million and a half years away. But, you know, patience. All right. So now back. So what was the specific question, Dan? Sorry, I can just repeat it. Yeah. Consistent high performance. Okay. So the next thing is testing your optimum day. So I get accused of some of the guys in my team of being a bit of a diva because I like really cold water and because I drink a lot of water and because I like Costa coffee, not any other coffee. And I like Costa coffee at 6 a.m. and 11.30 a.m. and not any other time. And, you know, I, wherever I go, I want to be driven in a nice car in the back rather than getting the train or driving it myself. And, you know, blah, 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 all these things that, you know, some people might regard as a diva. Now, don't worry, I don't just like one colour of M&Ms or anything like that. But the reason for this is, is because I've tested lots of different things in my life and I have found a system that works for me, whether it's sleep patterns or, you know, the highs and lows and ebbs and flows in the day and blah, blah, blah. Now, before I tell you this, which is answering your question, Dan, I'll do it really quickly. Everybody is different. So if anyone tells you, oh, well, you, you know, you've got to get up early or you only need eight hours sleep or you only need six hours sleep or whatever, ignore them because we're all different. And I know artists and creative types who work till 11 or 12 at night and, and then they're in flow 10 p.m., to 1 a.m. Me, I'm asleep by like 7.30 p.m. almost. I'm in a coma. I'm useless. I never put any meetings there. So get up at 5.30. Get in the car with podcasts on, you know, in, on the, in the car, in the audio, and I go to Costa Coffee and have a Costa Coffee at 6 a.m. If it's Starbucks or anything else, it doesn't work for me. Um, but with Costa, I seem to get this. I'm going to sound like a bit of a, a, a narcotics expert here, and I'm not, but, you know, I get like this clean buzz and I just feel like ooh, I could take over the world I like get a million ideas and I feel excited and I feel warm and fluffy and that lasts until about 10 o'clock in the morning so from sort of 6 30 till 7 15 that is me time to strategy planning vision etc which is my highest key result area and my highest income generating task because I'm at the stage now where I can have one idea in my business and it can make millions of pounds so if I'm too busy doing things and not giving myself space to have ideas it could cost me millions of pounds at 7.15 till 7.35 I do putting with Bobby I built a putting green in his bedroom and that's one of the reasons why I think it is your obligation to be rich because um, Bobby would not be as good at golf if he didn't have a putting green in his bedroom because then he can play all winter and so I do that at, at that time before he goes to school and of course, it's important for me to spend time with my kids. And Ariana does it now because she's, she's old enough. And then 7.45 to about 8.15 will be my time to do social stuff on Facebook and social media, etc. Then I book calls in 8.15 to 8.30, 8.30 to 8.45. 15 minutes is all you need to do a, a, a call. And then 8.45 to 9.15 is live feed video time because that seems to be the best reach for uh, live feed videos. And then 9.15 to 9.30, I catch up with my MD, but I only do that about two or three times a week and then once a week with my PA. And then 9.30 to 11.30 is time when meetings can be booked in. And one of the, and I, we get about three or four in then. And one of those is ring fence for just meetings that are need for me and my MD and Mark. And then I start coming off my coffee buzz at about 10.30. So at 11.30 until one, we keep my diary free and I do nothing or I do what I want because again, I have my coffee. And then one till about 2, 2.30 is emergency meetings. 
And hence why we got this in, Dan, because we've been trying to do that. I guess you and I must have this rigid schedule because it's been difficult to get us in. Some people think I'm being a dick with my diary, but I'm not because I know if, if you interview me at nine o'clock at night, Dan, you are not getting a good interview and you'd be embarrassed to have one of your followers on it because I'm in a coma. So then, so really from about 11.30, I'm done for the day work-wise. Then 1.30 to sort of 4.30, it'll be gym, time at home, whatever. Gemma, Gemma um, doesn't work, so you know, I catch up with her. And then 4.30 to 5.30 is golf with Bobby and take him, either he does his lessons or we go on the range or whatever. 5.30 is dinner with the kids till 6.30. So important to have dinner with your kids every day and, you know, that kind of thing. And then 6.30 onwards, um, I from 6.30 till about 8, I watch educational documentaries. Um, or if I'm feeling really tired, I'll just watch some Netflixy stuff. And then normally 8, 8.30, Gemma comes to bed. Uh, and then, you know, um, we watch some stuff together. And I don't need to um, talk about anything else after those, you know, that once a year occasion. Uh, and I'm asleep by nine. And then so my day. Go- and that every day is like that. And it's taken, it's taken me nine years to build that model. I absolutely love that. It's it's weird, Rob, because obviously we've known each other and been friends for years, but we, we, we don't spend a great deal of time together because our, in many respects, our morning routine is eerily similar. <laughs> You're right, that, that has been why it's been so difficult for us to arrange this. Uh, and just so everybody knows, we've been trying to arrange this for months, I mm. think, but our schedules never worked, and that's probably because we've both been so protected yeah. over the earlier parts of our day. Rob, yeah, I, I just want to segue into something. Actually, minor point I want to come back to, uh, just in case, you, I found this out recently, Robin, you'll probably love this story. So I can't remember which rock and roll band it was that had the rider of only having red M&Ms or whatever it was. I think it was Guns N' Roses, but whoever it was. I listened to a podcast from uh, the manager of that band and basically said that it was very consciously put in because the manager had figured out like the pyrotechnics and the, the, the AV set up for a massive show like that it's critically important and health and safety and all these kind of things. And they figured out that if they went and checked and the M&Ms weren't done right, it basically was an indicator to them that that means the organiser, the promoter, mm. you know, the, uh, not the promoter, but the, the person that's like arranging that event who's booked the band will not have paid attention to the other details. So actually, I, I had a pretty good defence for why they had that rider in and it was a specific tactic to see whether or not the, the people that were responsible for organising the AV and the setup and making sure it was safe had done their job. And that's why if they didn't have the, if they turned up on the red M&Ms, they weren't all red M&Ms, they would call off the gig. Yeah. And you know what? With the access to information we have now, podcasts, Google, you know, everything everywhere, it is not that difficult to incrementally improve your life. And what you find is the higher up the success chain you go, the more attention to detail people have. You know, like, for example, some of these mega higher achievers like Steve Jobs, well, they um, remove decision fatigue by wearing the same clothes all the time. So they don't have to make a decision for six minutes or even two minutes in the morning of what do I wear today? Now, six minutes to a billionaire is worth maybe 150 grand. So, you know, and people accuse all these people of, oh, diva and this and that and the other, but maybe some are. You know, but a lot of them have just tweaked and tested. Tony Robbins, he has his temperature at all of his events at a very specific, like, I don't know what it is. It's like 17.6 degrees or something, you know, and he's tested it because if it's too warm, there's no energy. Obviously, if it's too cold, it's too cold. 
And so, you know, I love self-testing. I love listening to podcasts. I think people listen to my podcast and your podcast because they want to incrementally improve their business. And by the way, when you improve yourself, you improve your business because you don't want a meeting with me 15 minutes before I have my next coffee because I've got Tourette's and, I, and, and I've got decision fatigue and I don't care and I just say whatever to get out the situation. But 15 minutes after, you want to brainstorm with me because I'm like, what? You know, so I think, what's the lesson from this, from our conversation, Dan? If you take attention to detail to, to watch your highs and lows and ebbs and flows in your day, and your diet is so important to this, and your exercise regime and routine is so important to this, you could compounding over the next 5, 10, 50 years is millions of pounds worth of difference in money and so much time leverage and time liberation. So, you know, if you, if you got a Mercedes S-Class and you had a two and a half hour journey and you paid 250 or 300 quid for a chauffeur to do that, and in the back of a car, you did a deal that might make you 20 or 30 grand, it is a no-brainer. But if you get a taxi to the station, get the train, get another underground, get another underground, get another underground, get pissed on in the rain, stuffed in the blooming you know, underground, well, you, you turn up and you're frustrated. And for 250 quid, it's nothing. So, yeah, you know, I, I think the Americans call it sort of self-hacking, don't they? But yeah, for me, it's made a big difference in my life. So Rob, I want, I want to be respectful uh, of your time, and I know that we're both on tight schedule today, so we have nine minutes, so I'm, mm. gonna, I'm gonna jump into quick fire question mode, if that's okay. Go so, so, you're talking about self-development. What are your favorites, or what three books, and I'll also extend it to include podcasts, or perhaps they're two separate questions, what three books have you uh, have had the biggest influence on your life? Okay, so um, I listen to about 500 or 600 audiobooks or podcasts a year. In fact, Dan, you inspired me because you remember you put a post saying, I'm going to go for a book a day. And I think I'd done about 200 in that year. And I thought, I've got to do a book a day. So you inspired me on that. And um, I listen on two times speed, as you can hear from me talking two times speed. So why am I saying that? Because it's blooming important. It is for me, I never have to struggle alone for any answer in anything in business and life because I know there's a podcast or an audio book or a, an expert in that area or their Facebook pages or their YouTube videos. So um, I've had so many, but what I'll tell you is at the time, so at the time, Think and Grow Rich was a, a, a mind opener for me because it was 10 years ago, or no, it was 12 years ago when I had no clue. So that was great. At the time, scaling up was great for me because I was going through some growth challenges in business. At that time, we were probably just like a one or a two million pound a year business. And I was having some struggling on HR and when you have an HR department. And, and that book was brilliant. So at the time, I would say that book. And the third one, that's difficult. I don't know. So come back to me on that one. Podcasts. Wait, no, what about podcasts? What, what, what po I mean, obviously, without any question, clearly Disruptive Entrepreneur is a podcast that everybody listening, <laughs> if they haven't downloaded uh, or if they've not subscribed to, they should. I'd strongly recommend it. I particularly like the Caffeine Casts. Thank you. But uh, beyond your own podcast, Rob, what, what, who do you listen to? Who do you find fascinating? Okay. And obviously, Business Growth Podcast, Dan. I love your work. So the thing is, again, it's like I'm, so, I'm quite hyper niche now. So for me, I'll go for podcasts, audiobooks, gurus, experts, mentors, trainers, courses in a specific niche. It was when I started, someone very generic and broad like Tony Robbins would have, have ticked a lot of boxes for me. So if I want, if I want someone who's a good self-hacker, someone like Tim Ferriss or James Altucher, I like their work. If I want someone who's entertaining and ranty 
and sort of I'm on holiday and I don't want any really hard, dry stuff, but I want to learn something as well. I might go like Joe Rogan. I loved his interview with Henry Rollins. I've always been into heavy metal, so I love Henry Rollins' band, and that was just brilliant. So I, I might go down that road. If I want someone who's really good, I think, at dealing with haters, I might go for Ty Lopez, you know, because he, he, you know, he's, he's quite outrageous in his marketing and he's got a lot of haters and he's doing a lot of content on that. So I kind of hyper niche in that regard. I've probably got, I mean, mark my words, Mark Homer's podcast, if I want my business partner, if I want sort of investing tips and sort of, um, you know, really factual, detailed knowledge, I'll, I'll go down that road. So there are a few. I mean, if I got my phone out, I can't because I'm live feeding, there'd be, I've probably got 25, you know, good ones. I like that a lot, and yeah, and just to underscore, mark my words, it's definitely a, a very good investing podcast that I want to recommend as well. Tell me, Rob, uh, as we uh, go to wrap up, let's have a bit of a quirky one. What's something that you believe to be true that, that others would find quite controversial? Passive income. <laughs> okay, good. Okay, uh, the good. Money, money, is, money is the root of all good. Yeah. Tell me more about what that means. I mean, you alluded to it earlier on, really, but, but why is the money the root of all good? Because money is a reflection of humanity and money is a, an individual mechanism of exchange of goods and services and ideas. And we're an interconnected species that rely on each other. We're interdependent. And so anything good that's happened in the world, which has need financing, you know, pretty much every cure of every disease that's ever been has been financed by a millionaire or a billionaire or philanthropists. And, you know, Warren Buffett gave 30 billion US dollars to the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. And Bill and Melinda Gates uh, put billions of their own money in. And their children's inheritance is, both of those people I've just mentioned, are not really going to their children. They're going to rid the world of polio. And I believe it was only 500 kids got polio last year or one of the other um, diseases they're trying to rid and, and it was t- it was like something like in the tens of millions when they started and you know without the guy who set up Microsoft and had that little circle thing where you were frustrated with his Windows operating system without him that, that wouldn't be rid or cured so all of the good in the world is created by money but of course all of the bad in the world is the same so I think the important thing to think is another thing which maybe a lot of people don't believe is you know some people say well I'm good or they're good or they're bad or they're nasty or they're kind or whatever. That's another myth. Every human being has every trait. And the things that you stand for, the things that you believe in, if someone really challenged that, then you could fight. You know, you could defame. You, you know, you could, you could injure and hurt people. You could be jealous. You could, you know, all of these things. So every human being has every trait. And those traits will come out when your values are challenged or met. So there's three things done. So, Rob, as we wrap up here, what is the best way for the listeners to find out more about you? Where should they go on Facebook? What books should they read? What podcasts should they subscribe to? Where do they go to find out more about you and your work and what you do? Okay, so Rob More Progressive on Facebook, you'll find me. My podcast is called The Disruptive Entrepreneur. So if you search that in Stitcher or, you know, iTunes or whatever, you'll find me there. And then maybe my most recent book, Life Leverage. I've written quite a few, um, but that's maybe the most universally appealing book. So it's, it's really about leveraging your time and growing yourself so that you can, you know, make more money working less. You can grow your business, doing less of the operations yourself. So, you know, Life Leverage, Disruptive Entrepreneur Podcast and Rob Moore Progressive on Facebook. Fantastic. Then all it leaves me to say is Rob Moore, thank you very much. Thanks, Dan. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in. It's been fun, and um, I'll see you soon. Thanks, Rob.
Thanks, Rob.